2: Hello, you're listening to Nerdette from WBEZ in Chicago. I'm Greta Johnson. And I'm Trisha Bobita. This week, we talk with Sarah Merck. She's the author of a self-help book that is actually good. It's called Sex from Scratch.
3: Then we look back at two women behind the creation of the birth control pill with author Jonathan Eig. And then there's homework from The Dan Savage. All that and more this week on Nerdette.
2: Because everybody's a little nerdy about something.
1: Make it snappy, nerd! Nerds! Nerd!
3: You're listening to Nerdette. I'm Trisha Bobita here with Greta Johnson. This week, we're joined by Sarah Merck. She's the online editor for Bitch Magazine. If you're an
2: OG Nerdette listener, you'll recognize Sarah's name and her voice. We actually talked with her in the early days of Nerdette, in the almost two years since we had her on the show. We apparently have made 100 episodes, and she has written a book. Her book is called Sex from Scratch. Sarah says it came about because she's the kind of person who seeks out books that can be resources for her when she has a problem. But when she started questioning her long-term boyfriend, she wandered over to the relationship section of the bookstore and says it was awful. Terrible. They were all weirdly emotionally manipulative books, you know, like how to get people to like you or how to snag a man. Stuff grounded in old school sexist stereotypes. None of it was helpful.
3: Sarah decided that since there wasn't a book about dating she wanted to read, she had to make one herself.
2: Really, the idea behind it
4: was to talk to people who are older than me and smarter than me and have done more thinking about this than me about... Um, what they've learned the hard way in relationships and glean all of their knowledge and collect it into a book um, that could really be a resource for people like me who are trying to figure things out.
2: Right, and a lot of what you were trying to figure out is that idea of here you are, you're happily with this guy, but you're kind of terrified at the notion that he's like the only guy that you're ever going to sleep with for the rest of your life. And that was sort of (laughs) the assumption that you grew up with having, right? Which many of us do.
4: Yeah, the idea of, you know, being young in my early 20s and being like so is this it
3: this forever now huh
4: (laughs) (laughs) my boyfriend carl who's featured in the book and the books sort of about our relationship and the ups and downs and he's great he's really wonderful really smart so great Mm -hmm. um but there were things that didn't work in our relationship you know and one of those things was sex we didn't really like having sex with each other just to put it frankly um and my thinking at the time was like how important is that Is that something, you know, when we line up on all these other big important things like our values and we like hanging out with each other and we have so much fun together, like does that really matter? And so the book was a process of sort of trying to figure that out based on talking to about a hundred different people.
2: And yeah, tell us a little bit about what different sorts of people you're talking to here.
4: Well, I put out a call to talk to people who I thought would have done some critical thinking about relationships and themselves and would have sort of figured out what they want, or at least done a lot of good thinking about that. I put out a call on Tumblr, actually, Hmm. and among my friends to talk to anybody who was in an open relationship, anybody who was genderqueer, people who had a relationship to sex that you don't see represented in pop culture very often, like people who are asexual, as well as a couple other groups of people. And the book really builds around sort of those different types of relationships. So there's a whole chapter on people who have decided that they're never going to have kids and people who've decided that they're never going to get married. And their experiences, regardless of what you decide to do, even if you want to have kids and want to get married, you can learn from their thoughts on the situation, the deep thinking that they've done. Lots of people have told me that they've gotten to the end of the book and they still don't know exactly what they're going to do in their relationships, but that it's helped them really think hard about some big questions that we don't talk about often enough.
3: In a fun way, it does what I think a lot of us rely on mostly fiction for, which is you put yourself in the shoes of someone in a story that's being told by someone else, and then as the story pivots left, right, wherever, you, as you're discovering what a character is going to do, are also deciding, would I have done that too? Would I have done something different? and learning from their mistakes instead of having to always learn from your own. I don't know if there's a better place you could do that than with relationships. You should give yourself more tools before you end up in those weird situations, feeling like I'm the only person who's ever dealt with this before.
4: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And it's, I think when you're trying to figure out what you want to do in your relationship, it can often feel really alone Mm. because our definitions of success and the representations of good relationships that we see in our media and pop culture are really limited, like success on a... TV show looks like you're happily married and you're straight and you have kids and you're middle class and uh, you can afford to take vacations sometimes. And so when you're looking around, you're deciding, actually, I think I want to never have kids and I actually think we should break up and that would be better for everybody. I can You can think of yourself as a failure or you can think of yourself as like, am I inventing this? Isn't this something people have done before?
3: And if half of relationships are ending in divorce and then all the ones previous to marriage ended without marriage, then clearly more relationships than not end not with marriage. And that doesn't mean that they were worthless.
4: Right. And I think a really important part of this book is to reflect and say, look, you are not the only person who is doing this. You know, that was something that was really affirming for me during researching the book and that I hope comes through is that people see themselves reflected in it. Of People who are thinking about the same thing that you're thinking about, even if it's kind of like the secret or maybe embarrassing stuff that you're not telling anybody about, you know, like if you're thinking about having an open relationship, you are not the only person in the world who is thinking that, you know, there are (laughs) millions and millions of people who have thought about that. And hundreds of thousands of people who have done that, and many, many who have done that successfully and happily, and it's not, like, a weird or insane idea.
2: I think, too, even if you haven't thought about open relationships, the book helps you know how to talk to people who are.
4: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it helps sort of, like, broaden your horizons, I hope, and see, like, hey, look, here's people doing stuff that you maybe don't know about, and even if you decide not to go down that route, it can still help inform your own relationships. As you see that there's a choice there, you know, that you decide, like, I think it's great to be monogamous as long as you recognize that there are other options and that's not the only one. And if you're doing that, it should be intentional.
2: And not because it's what you've
3: been told to do for your entire life. Exactly. I think of this as a relationship book for nerds. <laughs> yes, I think so. Because it's for people who are intellectually <laughs> yeah. curious and who need some data points behind them. But like you said, when you go to a relationship or a self-help section of a bookstore or you know Amazon, most of the things there are, like you said, either prescriptive, here are the 10 rules for being happy, or they're just really all about affirming whatever the person wants to believe. So most books, if they're about helping someone through a breakup or something like that, they're not really about self-discovery or critical thinking. They're just saying, it's okay, you're okay, everything's going to be fine, which there's a value in that for a person at a moment in their life. But this is for... intellectual curiosity about how relationship ethics work and I just think it's so refreshing and fun.
4: I think it's funny you use the term data points because that's exactly the way I see it. Mm -hmm. When I'm going through relationship trouble, like the only data point I have is myself and how I'm feeling and maybe my partner and how they're feeling. But what I really wanted was more data. You know, I wanted to have 100 experiences, not just one. And so that's why I talked to so many people to get more data to sort of chart patterns and chart experiences and see what you could make out of all of those points. Because if you're only learning from yourself, you know, you're going to have to do everything on your own instead of being able to learn from what others have gone through. And then also, I think it's funny because I do think of this as a relationship book for nerds. (laughs) And actually, the way I conceived of it when I first started working on it was – as a book that would provide a critical thinking framework for relationships that don't ascribe to religion or tradition. Right. But when you talk about it that way, people are like, what are you talking about? (laughs) What (laughs) What, What do you mean a critical thinking framework outside of religion or tradition? And I'm like, it's a DIY dating book. And people are like, oh, okay.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I think once you explain the title Sex from Scratch, it makes complete sense because it's like, okay, picture that you know beyond what you learned from your parents and what you may or may not have learned from religion and societal expectations, what actually do you expect to get out of this stuff?
4: Yeah, and that's the idea is that you can often feel like you're making this stuff up on your own and you're doing it sort of without a lot of guideposts, um, but that your guideposts can be, other people and other experiences, because we don't have, if you don't want to look to the Bible and you don't want to look to what your parents did and you don't want to look to TV, who do you look to for role models and relationships? And hopefully you can look to other people, but only if you are willing to talk to them or read about them.
2: So what are some of the main criteria that you've taken away from the book that you hope to ascribe to now?
4: Well, you know, it's funny because there's a lot of dating guidebooks that are really kind of heavy handed and are like, here's what to do. Right. And this book, doesn't have that at all. (laughs) Where It's more like, here's some big ideas and stuff to think about, which is why I tried to distill some of the advice in the book into sort of slogans that are illustrated throughout the book.
3: Love a good slogan. Exactly. (laughs) So
4: that you can keep those critical thinking slogans in mind, even though they're not like, do this, do that. Here's an algorithm you can use to make the perfect love life. It's here are some good ideas to keep in mind. And one one of the slogans that hits most closely for me is a phrase be more honest. Mm. And that's something that I've it's illustrated in the book as like a cool little picture I've right at the very beginning and it's also something that I've written on a sign and pasted to my wall because that's what I try and be is be more honest. When I'm in a situation where I realize I'm not saying something because I think it's going to make somebody else uncomfortable You know, I have something I need to tell that I should tell the person I'm dating, but I don't want to because, like, I know it'll make him angry or sad or it's just awkward. I'm like, be more honest. Choose the path of more honesty and try and be more honest about that.
2: Yeah, that reminds me of the anecdote. I can't remember who it was who said it, but she was talking about how she was with this guy for a really long time. And even at the very beginning he had put his arm around her and she thought it felt wrong. Like it just felt weird to her that his arm was around her in this way. But she kept trying to make it work for a really long time. And looking back, it was like, wow, if I had just known in that very moment, the first time he touched me, that it was going to be weird, maybe I wouldn't have gone through all that.
4: Mm -hmm, Exactly. Where like, it's hard to speak up, especially I think that's a gendered thing. I think especially for women, it's hard to speak up because we're taught and we're socialized to, like, make others feel good and take care of them emotionally and not cause a fuss. And so a lot of times I'm like, I'm just going to bite my tongue, not cause a fuss. And now the slogan I try and keep in mind is, okay, be
3: more honest. I like it. The one that I think people in relationships struggle with a lot that was uh, something that my dad always said, and it wasn't about uh, romantic relationships, it was about all relationships, was that whenever you're feeling completely frazzled by someone, Take a moment, and his slogan was consider the source. Hmm. Just take one step backwards and think about why they're saying what they're saying and why they're saying it the way they're saying it, and suddenly you're doing that critical thinking thing instead of the just emotional thinking, and it solves a lot of problems. And that's why you became a journalist, right? Yeah, Trisha?
2: exactly. Consider the source. Considering the source. <laughs> that's perfect. Yeah, I think that's really, I think that's
4: really good advice. I think another phrase that comes through in the book that I've been thinking about personally is there's a phrase that a writer named Aya De Leon says in the book, and she says, "Take
2: up as much space as you want." Yeah, I really loved that. I'm glad you brought that one up. I love that,
4: and that's something that I really have to keep in mind. You know, I wish I was as good of a person as. I try to be in the book. You know, I'm like, definitely, I should do all these things. But really, it's a constant practice and constant struggle to have better relationship habits and have better communication habits and to untrain myself from all of the sort of ways that you learn to do relationships in our society. And one of those things is to try and take up as much space as I want, which is, you know, if I feel like I'm being shut down in a discussion with somebody I'm dating or if I'm worried about telling them something positive or negative like I should just focus on trying to take up as much space as I want and the the, the example that Aya de Leon uses in the book is about specifically her partner I believe snoring oh, super yeah. loudly, so loudly <laughs> that she can't sleep and she goes she does all of this sort of like roundabout way to change her life to make it okay that this guy is snoring so loudly like um to the point of you know, buying earplugs and putting them in and then also stuffing in like cotton balls in her ears and just like really changing her life and her patterns because of a problem he has. And finally, she gets him to go to the doctor and it turns out he has sleep apnea and like really needs to get it treated. And that's and that's an example of like how... I think especially as women, we're told like, oh, just like sort of accommodate this, accommodate this, accommodate this, and it would be better. Don't be a nag. Exactly. Don't be a nag. Don't be a shrewd. Don't be a bitch. And it would be way better for everybody if you just said, hey, you've got a problem. You should deal with it. You
2: have a serious issue (laughs) here. (laughs) if
4: I can't sleep, that's a problem.
3: Yep. You know? I talk about this sometimes with some of my family who are in education and this movement towards individualized education in public schools is I think a good thing of recognizing that 30 kids aren't all at the same place and aren't going to experience something the same way and the more differentiation we can do, the better. And so we're trying to do these things for kids like individualized education plans, IEPs. And I always sort of think about what's the IEP for my life? Like what is the way I'm constructing my my adult life so that I'm in situations where I can be learning but that I'm comfortable learning about new things or new people. And in some ways we can conform to those norms. And in others, we just get told, no, you just have these are just rules you have to follow. Like there's people who are allowed to behave differently, maybe because of privilege or other things. But for the most part, we need to be generally kind to each other unless we have a reason not to. And not everyone does. And if we don't prescribe a rationale onto that, if we don't explain away that with someone we're in a relationship with, I think that it's hard because we were taught to sort of say, but this is just who you are. So you're just being you're just taking up as much space as you want. Mm-hmm. And it just happens to be a space full of rudeness. <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah, I think that I really like that idea of making an individualized education plan for your dating life. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's yeah. something we could all do. I kind of feel like that's what this is. I, I conceptualize that as being like, what is my job in this relationship and trying to see it as my job?
3: Oh, I like that because I like work.
4: <laughs> you know, if I'm doing something for work, I'll do all kinds of like unpleasant things, stuff I don't want to. I'll go to like endless meetings, hmm. you know. But if it's for my relationship, I'm like, oh, I don't want to go out of my way at all. Or do something that's hard, <laughs> so I have to be like, it's my job. I'm gonna do it, you know. And for me, you know, my job entails speaking up more often because I have a problem with that. My job entails sort of really listening and taking people's feedback to heart because I can be super stubborn, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it it involves sort of recognizing the way that my partner does something differently and trying to respect that. Because I have a habit of thinking that every way I do something is the right way. And that would look different for different people,
2: you know? Yeah, absolutely. Sarah Merck, author of Sex From Scratch. Thank you so much for talking with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me on your great and nerdy show. to come, the women who helped create the birth control pill and homework from Dan Savage. It's
3: a sexy, sexy episode, people. (laughs) Stay with
0: us. (laughs) Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series.
3: listening to Nerdette, Greta and I decided that the great lady nerd of history this week is actually two women. Two women who were integral to the creation of the birth control pill. One you've probably heard of, Margaret Sanger. The other is lesser known but was an equally essential player in the story of how the first oral contraception pill came to the U.S. market.
2: We talked about both women with Jonathan Eig. He's the author of a book called The Birth of the Pill.
3: In his book, he profiles the main characters that led to the first birth control pill. There's Margaret Sanger, like we said. There's Gregory Pincus, the scientist. John Rock, the Catholic OBGYN, who I've decided in the movie version should be played by Alec Baldwin. Just putting that out there now, calling it. And Catherine McCormick.
2: We're focusing today on Margaret Sanger and Catherine McCormick. Here's Jonathan Ike.
5: Yeah, when Margaret Sanger had this vision, and it goes back to even like 1915, 1920, she started saying, first of all, so women could enjoy sex. Second of all, so they could have better health. So they could control the size of their families and have children when they wanted to, when they were ready for them. But she said exactly what we need is, is something like a miracle tablet, she called it, where women could hide it from the men if they wanted to, if they had to. Not something they fumble with right before sex. They have to be able to take it every day and they have to be able to get pregnant when they want to by stopping the use of this miracle tablet. So she had this vision but the, uh, yeah, at that point, the alternative really was abortion or not having sex. Those were really your only options to control your fertility back then.
3: And we, so we have the scientist and we have the activist and Margaret Sanger, but neither of them had very deep pockets. So enter a third character in this rebellious journey.
5: Yeah, right. Um, where are you going to pay for all this scientific research? Um, Margaret Sanger went to Planned Parenthood and they weren't sure they wanted to get involved with it. And think about it. It's, it's illegal and it's going to be very expensive. And you're basically saying that we're going to create a pill for healthy women in the prime of their lives, um, their childbearing ages. And who knows what kind of consequences that might have. It could be, you know, there could be fatalities. So Planned Parenthood is afraid of this. They don't want to risk everything they've built getting involved in something so potentially dangerous. So they have to go to uh, a woman named Catherine McCormick, and and she agrees to fund the entire project independently. She has some Chicago connections. She's a married to the son of the uh, creator of International Harvester, the, the man who invented the reaper. So she's fabulously wealthy. Her husband is dead, and she's got all the money in the world, and she tells Sanger she'll she'll take care of this. She'll fund the entire thing herself. Wow.
3: That's Jonathan Eig, the author of The Birth of the Pill. You can learn more about Margaret Sanger and her sugar mama, Catherine <laughs> McCormick, by reading this book. We'll have a link to that at nerdatpodcast.com. As promised, here's homework from Dan Savage, everyone's favorite sex columnist, host of the Savage Lovecast podcast, which has been around, I think that's probably one of the first... Really popular yeah, podcast. I think so. And he's been doing this for we've done a hundred episodes, he's done like five oh million episodes.
2: Yeah, if you guys haven't listened to Savage Love, you absolutely you need to just like stop what you're doing right now and go listen. It's really good, especially within the context of having talked to Sarah about sex from scratch.
3: It certainly highlights non-traditional relationships and the callers he listens to on that show will make you feel a little better about your own life because <laughs> there have some stuff going on. <laughs> and Dan Savage is always giving good advice on that show and in his column Savage Love on the Stranger. He's also an avid reader, so we wanted to know what he's been reading lately.
1: Hey, this is Dan Savage, and here's your homework assignment from me. I think that you should read. No, I don't think you should read. I am assigning you. You must read. This is required reading. John Ronson's new book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed. It is about people who've survived sort of online monsterings on Twitter and Facebook, people who've stepped in it, uh, and people who've been unfairly targeted, sometimes fairly targeted for online shaming, harassment, sort of, uh, you know, mob ridicule and had their lives uh, turned upside down, sometimes even destroyed. I just read the book. It's amazing. It will change the way you function online. It will change the way you perceive Twitter. It'll change the way you perceive your power. There's a line in the, in the book that the snowflake never feels responsible for the avalanche. And after reading uh, the entire book that's wrapped around that idea, that thought, Now you feel like – I feel like I need to take responsibility for my my part in the avalanches that I could help create uh, online on Twitter. So I assign that book to you, So You've Been Publicly Shamed by John Ronson. Read it immediately.
2: And speaking of reading, here's a book nerd-related nerd confession.
6: Hi, Tricia and Greta. This is Joe Beth from Oklahoma City. I'm calling in with a nerd confession as well as a book recommendation. I was recently reading a book, actually just finished today, um, a book called Swamplandia by Karen Russell, which was fantastic, and I would recommend it to just about anybody. But I accidentally the other day left it at work, and when I got home and realized that, I felt just so off all evening that I didn't have this book that maybe I would want to read it that evening or i always read while i'm eating breakfast so i knew the next day i wouldn't be able to read my book and so i just felt kind of grouchy and cranky and um when i got back to work the next day and was reunited i just felt immediately better and then along with that having just finished this book i just feel <laughs> feel kind of off like i just i need a new book to kind of fill that void and um yeah. So that's my nerd confession is apparently I get really cranky when I don't have a good book to read. Thanks so much for the show. I love it. And you guys keep up the good work. Joe Bath, book
2: withdrawal is real. I am here <laughs> to tell you this is why I actually ended up bringing sex from scratch with me to a White Sox game last week.
3: <laughs> you did. I also like this because I think it gives us a chance to make a new word. So we know that if you're hungry and it makes you angry, <laughs> that you're hangry. Ooh. So if you're Angry? Does it mean you don't have a good book to read and you're angry? Man, I feel or like bangry? because there's litter, a, a book? litter, litter,
2: angry, litter, angry. It's in there somewhere. Help us out, guys.
3: Tweet at us if you have a good word for when you're cranky because you don't have a good book to read. I'm still going with litter angry. I think that's my litter Yeah,
2: that's pretty. I think it's pretty good. I just call that like morose in general. But yes, the other thing about Swamplandia specifically, Trisha, is that. That is why Seth is named Seth, my cat. Your monster. My monster, which is oddly actually horribly fitting because the Seths in Swamplandia are crocodiles.
3: I think if there was a crocodile in our apartment, it would bite me less.
2: I wonder if they're and actually alligators. I always get them mixed up. But yeah, essentially, I named the cat after a monster and the cat
3: turned into a monster. So that's my fault. So be careful, parents. Be careful. If you name your children Seth or <laughs> <A> Monster. monster. <laughs> I'm a monster!
2: <laughs> In any case, Joe Beth, thank you so much for that nerd confession. You may have noticed how beautiful it sounded. That is because Joe Beth recorded herself on her smartphone and then emailed us the audio file. It is super easy. Try it out. Send us an email of your nerd confession at nerdatpodcast at gmail.com.
3: Or, of course, you can call us and leave a voicemail 312-600-5638. But however you send it, what we need is your nerd confession. Yes, call us 312-600-5638. Tell us about when you were at your nerdiest everything from epic fails to humble brags welcome. We want to hear about when your extreme enthusiasm for something or someone else's had a memorable result.
2: Or suggest a great lady nerd of history for us to profile or just call to say hi. We really love hearing from you. Thanks to Sarah Merck, author of Sex from Scratch, Jonathan Eig, author of The Birth of the Pill, and Dan Savage for joining us this week.
3: And special thanks to Tyler Green for recording that Dan Savage homework for us. You can hear a full interview with Dan Savage and Tyler Green and Don Hall, the host of WBEZ's General Admission. We'll put a link to that at NerdetPodcast.com.
2: Coming up next week on Nerdette, we talk with Jessica Hopper. She's the senior editor at Pitchfork and the author of the first collection of criticism by a living female rock critic.
3: I took all of my energy while we were talking to Jessica to not just be like, so let's talk about the movie Almost Famous. <laughs> yeah. A lot. Yeah, forever. we actually
2: didn't talk about it at all, huh? I love that movie so much. Beautiful exercise of self-restraint, Tricia. I've actually seen that movie. Hey, I just it's want one to point out. Movies. Yep, exactly. Oh, good. Wow. The show is produced by us, Trisha Bobita <laughs> and Greta Johnson. I was just thinking about how this is number 101 and
3: it just blew my mind a 101 little. nerdettes. Oh my god, that's too many nerdettes. No, that's just enough. It's just enough. Until next week when there will need to be more. <laughs> more. <laughs> <laughs> we couldn't do this show without help from WBZ's Joe Disso and his squire Brad Helm.
2: You can find links to all of the things, including sign-up thingies for our weekly email newsletter at nerdappodcast.com.
3: You can listen to us wherever you are, because you already are, but we would love it if you took the plunge and subscribed on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you're listening. We share links to things we love on Facebook,
2: which you can see if you like us there.
3: We're on Twitter, at Nerd at Podcast, and now that Game of Thrones is over, we can still keep talking about it, but should we all start watching a new show together? I don't know. When does Doctor Who come back?
2: I have been catching up finally on Orphan Black and (gasps) loving it. You're missing out, Tricia. You gotta 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 catch catch up. up. Gotta catch up. You can also find us on Instagram. We're at nerdatpodcast. That's where I write little pocket-sized book reviews.
3: Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect nerds like you. Mm-hmm. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Throw us some stars and write a review if you're feeling generous. Like the excellent, I just want to point out this isn't in all caps, <laughs> M T did on iTunes. <laughs> Megmat.
2: I think this is Meg and Matt, and they live in Montana, that's my guess.
3: Oh, you're right. I added an A because I wanted it to be I like, like a tree. Mega, yeah, mega I Matt. <laughs> no, that's cool. Laundromat. <laughs> mega Matt.
2: <laughs> in any case, they describe being nerdy as a fun affliction, which I feel really good about.
3: There's one other way you can help Nerdette. If you're a nerd with a business or you work for one and you want to get your message heard by Nerdette listeners, you can underwrite this show. Email nerdatpodcast at gmail.com to learn more about sponsorship opportunities. Our theme music is New Old Toys by Poddington Bear. Do your homework.